Welcome to episode two of the Leaders in Learning podcast series, a product of the Collaborating, Learning, and Adapting team at the United States Agency for International Development. Starting from a theory that effective learning organizations are more impactful development organizations, Leaders in Learning is a seven-part podcast series that explores promising practices in building learning organizations through interviews with a variety of knowledge management and organizational learning leaders in the international development sector. My name is Piers Bocock, and I am the Chief of Party of USAID's Knowledge Management and Learning Contract, also known as LEARN, and I have the good fortune of being able to host this podcast with my colleague and friend, Stacy Young a senior learning advisor in the Office of Learning, Evaluation, and Research in USAID's Bureau for Policy, Planning, and Learning, and team lead for USAID's Collaborating, Learning, and Adapting team. If you listened to our first episode, then you already know that this series is based on conversations and interviews that Stacy and I conducted with 10 thought leaders in knowledge management and learning. Because it would be impossible to include all their wisdom in every episode, Each show will share selected audio clips from three to four of the interviews to review and discuss in response to a key question with which we have been grappling. The focus of this episode, our second in our Leaders in Learning series, is on the big question, the raison d'etre, so to speak, of our professional existence, Stacey, you and and I. So um, I hope you're ready. Absolutely. Thanks. It's great to be here. Uh, So, Stacey, the question we're going to tackle today is why organizational learning matters in international development. And I know that you and I both have some strong opinions about this. After all, it's why we've chosen to focus our professional careers on this. Mm -hmm. But I first wanted to remind ourselves and summarize for our listeners what some of those we interviewed for this series have said in response to this big question. So today we're going to hear from three of our thought leaders. The first is Karen Mokate, Chief of Knowledge Management at the Inter-American Development Bank, IADB. The second is Gwen Hines, who until recently was the Director for International Relations at the UK's Department for International Development. And the third is Duncan Green, a Senior Strategic Advisor at Oxfam. So again, the question on the table is, why does organizational learning matter? and international development? A big question, right? Yeah, it it is a big question, uh, but I think it's one that we're getting better and better at answering. And I know that the people we interviewed are as well, so I'm really looking forward to getting to it. Cool. So in reviewing the transcripts and the interviews and my scribbled notes uh, from these interviews, all of which were fantastic, um, what emerged for me were three buckets of themes in response to this question. So um, the first one we're going to hear is that development is complex. It's a complex business. So that's one of the reasons why learning is so important to international development. So what we're going to do now is we're going to hear three clips. First, you're going to hear from Karen Mokate. Then you're going to hear from Duncan Green. And the third will be from Gwen. And then we'll talk a little bit about what we've heard. Okay? Okay, sounds good. The nature of development is is one that is uncertain, dynamic, different from for each context. So if you have a limited body of knowledge, you're you're um, 
your path to success is going to be truncated. And I think to the degree that we can um, bring together different insights, different perspectives, learn from different contexts so that we can adapt to specific cont uh, countries, adapt to the uncertainties that the future brings in general, and of course now with so much uncertainty in the political and the technological spheres, I think this is only resonating more and more with, with persons. So, you know, if development were, I don't know if we can talk about hard science anymore, but if development were a hard science, I don't think we'd be having this conversation. But just given the nature of the beast, um, really having that know-how and being able to talk about what has worked in other contexts, I think is um, an easy sell. The, the, my standard spiel talk on the book uh, starts with the cake and says, you know, to make a cake, you need ingredients, a recipe, an oven, and it is a predictable process. You can predictably produce a cake and it's attributable. You can say, I got a cake because I followed the recipe. That's the project. And real life doesn't look like that. That's not how you raise your child, I hope. That's not how you drive, I hope. Um, you know, in real life, you're constantly learning, iterating, dropping some things, picking up new things, and behaving like adaptive managers. So what instruments other than projects might lend themselves to this? And what I'm quite interested in at the moment is very old-fashioned. If you look at the units which kind of navigate through complex social and economic systems and keep popping up, it's not projects, it's individuals. And I actually think there's a, there's a complexity-based argument for revisiting scholarships and stipends and support for individuals. If we can do it in a way which doesn't sort of um, contaminate them in some way, I think that could be a really interesting way to fund, put money into strengthening an ecosystem. So it does require us to keep finding the evidence of where it's made a difference. But I think it's also showing people that you know, we've done the easy bits of development, if you like, as the international community. What we've got left with now are the really tough things. And these aren't things that we necessarily already know the answer to, apart from some. Right. So for all of us, if we're really serious about the last mile in countries, about fragile states, about some of these really tough challenges, mm -hmm. we've got to do something different. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's very much everyone I talk to in other organisations, in people in the village, everyone wants to see things improve. So I think it's, it's putting it in that context is the key yeah. and making it, as I say, as easy and as simple as possible. Figure out what's getting in the way, what's stopping people do this. So I picked Karen's quote, um, because I liked the acknowledgement from a donor that development is complex, um, that it's not necessarily a hard science, and yet um, there are lessons to be learned and things that can be uh, gleaned from situations in one location that could be brought to another and perhaps uh, shared as, as part of um, their work, but that context matters. Uh, the second one is... Um, Duncan's acknowledgement that uh, a recipe is easy, uh, but life doesn't follow a recipe. Mm -hmm. And then his connection to the fact that it's about individuals. And so that connects with some of our thoughts on the value of champions and individuals 
and their change leading to organizational change. And the third bit is, is Gwen um, from DFID talking about how, again, acknowledging from the donor perspective that it is that there are complex elements to development. We've done, as she put, the easy bits, but there are still a lot of challenges that we face. Yeah, Piers, I think that those are all really good points. Um, I liked that Karen talked about not just complexity, but uncertainty. I think that is a big part of our context. So even with, um, you know, what Gwen refers to as the easy parts of development, where maybe Duncan's recipe can be applied, um, when uncertainty enters, even those kinds of supposedly sure bets, sure approaches, sometimes fall apart. And so, uh, you know, acknowledging the contextual uncertainty and the need to continuously learn how to adapt as our contexts adapt, even if we think we've, we've got a development approach that's tried and true, that seems really important. Um, I also thought that, um, you know, what Duncan said about the importance of individuals um, is true, and at the same time, when I think about how individuals who are passionate and committed to development have to operate within certain organizational contexts, that's where sometimes we see some of these um, organizational norms that can create incentives for people to pretend, if you will, that development is simpler than it is. Um, you know, that's where we see the incentives that work against people saying, hey, we still have a lot to learn here, and the incentives to instead say, okay, we have greater certainty than, than we actually do. Um, we uh, will set about planning this development intervention as though there's only one possible path to um, achieving development outcomes in that path is fairly certain instead of really acknowledging, okay, these are the gaps in our evidence. These are the kinds of learning questions that we need in order to address those gaps. Maybe we need to design an intervention so we're testing a couple different approaches. Maybe we all need to acknowledge that there's a lot that we don't know about this, and that means building in that learning piece and building in the pause and reflect and being much more committed to an adaptive approach, an iterative approach, and so on. And I think all of those reasons make it really important for us to focus on learning and development. I want to, uh, I think that's very interesting, Stacey, and I want to push a little bit on what we think are those disincentives and what where we've seen some of those disincentives um, broken. Where have we seen examples of um, doing development as usual changed to doing development differently? Yeah, good question, Piers. And I think that um, probably as an implementing partner, you have um, experienced you know, being on the receiving end of a donor's expectations that you'll lay out a plan um, at the beginning of an activity and then just sort of, you know, stay on course, right? Uh, but I think where we see things being done differently is kind of everywhere. Really, I think that um, this is a really exciting time in international development because globally there's much greater recognition than there has been before um, of the need to be adaptive, of the importance of iterative approaches, of the complexity of the context in which we're doing development work. Um, 
And yet we still do have some of these institutional practices around how we establish our uh, our, our strategies and our designs, um, what kinds of things we are looking at and measuring in order to understand progress, um, how we incentivize our partners, what we expect from our partners in terms of complying with a plan as opposed to really surfacing uh, sometimes difficult to receive information about what's happening and what's not happening. I think that's exactly right. And um, before I move us on to our next set of clips, I I want to um, circle back to that piece about acknowledging the complexity and that last point that you just made that what is so exciting, I think, to both of us in these conversations that we've had is widespread acknowledgement by donors that the traditional power dynamics have gotten in the way of development by um, not necessarily looking as at their implementing partners as um, sources of knowledge and partnership, as well as the eventual stakeholders. And I think you and I have both seen examples positive examples of where um, uh, an activity uh, project will be designed in consultation with the partners, with the stakeholders, and acknowledging that the donor and the activity only have so much control over the outcome, Mm -hmm. that there's so many uncertainties, and that if there is going to be a path towards self-reliance of the ultimate stakeholders, that we just have to build in that acknowledgement that things will change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. Excellent. Well, we could talk about this just one response all day, but let's move on to the second set of clips. And these clips, first we're going to hear from Gwen, and then we're going to hear from Karen, and then we'll hear from from Duncan Green. And this second grouping of responses to the question of why does learning matter in international development is because it helps improve how we do our work. So, let's have a listen. We've started from the premise, um, and the World Bank and others, I think, similarly, that, that staff want to do the best they absolutely can. You know, People in DFID are very, very motivated by the development mission, and it comes across in our people surveys. So we've started from the premise that people want to do that. So what's getting in the way? Um, I, one of the things that we've noticed that is different at the IDB than in other development organizations is that our knowledge management group is, um, it sits right in the same department with our learning group. So all of our training efforts are in the same department. And um, that allows us to have great synergy between the two efforts and, of course, I think a lot of our mentality then is also very focused on our staff as huge knowledge assets. And um, where I know we can be be much more proactive in in promoting greater synergies, there, there are many of my team members, including myself, that came to knowledge management through training. So we were working in training, and I think that does give a focus that's particular to our knowledge um, management approach. So, you know, classically, if you want to change an organization, it's either got to be growing really fast or it's got to be on a burning platform and about to die. All that bit in the middle is really hard in terms of organizational change. I think the same probably happens for individuals too. 
Um, so I think there's some, some rhythm questions. The other thing I'm really interested in, massively neglected in the aid business, is the whole question of social norms. So, you know, I had a really interesting discussion with the International Budget Partnership, which is a great organisation, about what are, your, what are your norms as an institution? You know, what... Because in... So, let me rewind. The US Marines, when they go into combat, reportedly don't go in with a massive manual, which they consult every few yards. They go in with heuristics, rules of thumb. They say, take the high ground, stay in communication, keep moving, improvise, and presumably shoot people, right? Um, one of the equivalents in other organisations, it's not a conversation we ever have. I know there are strategic rules of thumb in Oxfam, things like, what are the gender implications of this? You know, you, things which you always ask in any conversation, not necessarily verbally, but you just check it off. You know. And it's really interesting to have those conversations about what are your rules of thumb? Do people in the organisation have different rules of thumb? Is that a problem? Bring it out into the light and look at it. I think it might be, well be useful. And then the question on norms more generally, you know, aid, the aid business, activism, change agency prefers short-term tangible targets because we want to know we're achieving something. But if you stand back and think what's changed in the world over the last 30, 40 years, you see this enormous normative tide going on, which is on, on, on race, on sexuality, on inequality most recently, you know, of different things. Um, and we've only got the flimsiest idea of how those norms change, um, lots of different explanations, even less idea about how to deliberately influence those norm changes. And I think, you know, a bit more focus on norm changes and behaviours and those underlying tectonics would be really a good investment for the aid business. All right, so three quite different angles on the same question, but to me, as I listened to them, they um, were all talking about the improvement of internal operations in service of the ultimate mission of development. Um, and I was really struck, I think, and I, I can recall us doing the interview with Gwen, how animated she got when she was talking about her people and their commitment to the mission of DFID. Karen's was much more practical, but was talking about the values of synergies and intentionally um, embedding learning with the same team that was also doing training and acknowledging the value, the critical value of um, people as knowledge assets. And Duncan, in his academic way, was talking about a lot of different things. Um, but when it came down to the idea of norms, that's something that I think um, we look at a lot, and I know we've talked about, Stacy. is how do you change an organization or support an organization to change such that there is a culture of learning where it is safe to acknowledge we don't have all the answers and it, sort of circling back to our previous question that in a complex world um, we need a culture whose norms reward curiosity and learning. Yeah, that's really good, Piers. Um, what I'm hearing here is um, different takes on the same nest of questions around individuals and their context. And, you know, of course, I loved what Gwen said because she 
what she said, I could have said the same thing about USAID, right? We have staff who are passionately committed to uh, the mission of the organization. We uh, can see that demonstrated in staff surveys. And so what we did was we set about to ask what's in the way and remove those obstacles, right? Exactly how we came to CLA at USAID. Um, and Karen's talking about um, you know this this organizational focus on knowledge management, how knowledge is um, captured and and stored, and and um, uh, how its flow is supported throughout an organization, but then also individuals within that, right? So bringing that focus on individual training, indi individual capacity, together with the with the organizational focus on knowledge stock and knowledge flows, and then of course Duncan talking about the the individual behaviors but how those are supported by the broader norms um, within which the individuals are situated so in all of these i think uh, we hear a lot of resonance with our own work um, which which looks at both of these both of these dimensions right um, what are the kinds of um, uh, situations that individuals need to find themselves in order to um, collaborate well, in order to um, be open to new learning and be supported in learning, and in order to adapt their programs as, as they go. Um, and what is the culture? What are those uh, broader enabling conditions that we can put in place in order to make all of that possible so that um, you know, that whole uh, symbiotic process is removing the obstacles to good development. That, that back and forth between individuals and the culture um, or the, the context in which they're operating, I think it, it, it's no accident that that's a common theme among these three. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And one of the things that you reminded me of is some of the work that, that we've done together in, in Nairobi and in Delhi and seeing learning as almost a reminder of that connection to mission. Because when you ask people why they're doing this work, mm -hmm. why should they take the time to really dig in and learn more about what's going on, there's only one answer, because we want to make the world a better place. Everybody is there for that. Right, right. And learning is, is a way to do that, is, yeah. is the pathway to that. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm so glad you reminded me of that because we have seen almost literally, right, the lights turning on, the light bulbs uh, turning on above people's heads, really people coming alive at the notion that I don't have to pretend anymore that this is working. When they know it's not working, that's, it, it kills people to do that um, because because they are so passionately committed to doing good development. And when the institutional norms or um, the expected behaviors, the surrounding culture, the, the incentives that are tied into place by the processes that we have, when those get in between people and being able to go do good development, they sort of, they, 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 um, their energy gets sapped, right? Yeah. And, and um, they're not able to connect with their, their sense of mission and their sense of purpose. And so I think you're absolutely right that focusing on learning and then all of the other things that facilitate good development um, really helps connect people with their sense of purpose again. And so they're able to bring their best game to this work that we do. That's, it's so true. And I think one of the really fun kind of 
dichotomies is that the work that we do with USAID and that Gwen was doing with DFID and Karen does with IADB and many of the other people we talk to are part of an organizational bureaucracy that is intentionally trying to break down bureaucracy. Right, and therefore will ultimately fail. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, on the way, I, I you know, I'm I'm being partially facetious, um, but um, there's a lot of change that we're able to institute. And you know, I I have to quibble just a little bit with Duncan. Um, he's talking about broad shifts toward inclusion and um, what enables those. I think that we do know some about that. He's right that there's a great deal that we don't know about how those tides begin to gain momentum. Um, but, you know, as as somebody who has previously studied social movements, for instance, um, and participated in them, I, I think some of those things are known. And I think a lot of that same dynamic, he's right to connect that to the work that we're doing on organizational learning. Um, because... Uh, there are shifts that take place and you're not really sure which of the many things that you tried to do help that shift come about. And, and of course, it's not just things that you're trying to do, it's things that other people are trying to do as well. Um, but yeah, you know, to his point, it's not, it's not a recipe and it is way more complicated than we'll ever be able to understand. But uh, I do see, uh, you know, it's just so helpful to see um, how many implementing partners are working in more adaptive modes, how much organizations are investing in learning, how we're all getting better at some forms of collaboration, even as other impediments remain. And I think that's right. And as we'll hear in a subsequent episode of this, a huge acknowledgement needs to go to the donors because, as we started talking about earlier, the reality is that uh, implementing partners will take the lead of donors. And um, one of the things that attracted me to this job right now that I have in being able to work with you and your team for the last three and a half years was straight up front this um, very clear message from the Bureau for Policy Planning and Learning that your implementing partners are doing innovative things and that sometimes the implementing partners are out in front. Yeah. And that there's an opportunity to learn from that. Yeah, definitely. And again, I think that's that's back to that dynamic that Gwen mentioned, um, looking at how we as donors can remove the obstacles in the path of you as implementing partners to really achieving as much as you possibly can. Yeah. One, one point that I wanted to uh, bring out, I want to interpret, I think, what Duncan was saying that he didn't outrightly say is that when we are doing three or five year contracts and we're doing projects, if you do not have good monitoring in place and you do not have good and effective evaluation of those programs and those evaluations are not used in designing the next effort, it is much harder to know over 30 years what has happened. At the same time, there's immense pressure to create change in a short period of time if you're only looking at an effort in a five-year chunk. Yeah. Yeah. No, fair enough. Fair enough. Now, so, talking about 30 years and massive changes, let's move on to the third set of clips, which I think is uh, fundamental to the way that 
you and I talk about learning um, and our partners and our friends and our colleagues and the other champions in this business, which is when asked, why does learning matter in international development? Because it improves development impact. And so first we're going to hear from Gwen, then we'll hear from Karen, and then we'll hear from Duncan. So organizational learning, obviously, there's a textbook definition, but for DFID, this is fundamentally about impact. DFID is very driven by maximizing the impact of the 0.7 that we spend, um, and this is very much at its heart about using the evidence, the knowledge, and the know-how that our teams have got across the business better so that we're sharing that across the business and so people are actually feeding it into what they do and adapting how they work. And when we finish something, we're feeding what we learned from that back so others can learn from it, whether in DFID or beyond. A lot of us have worked in knowledge management in random ways or not systematic ways. And I think when you're intentional and you're planned, then you're trying to prioritize in a way that's hooked into the organization's mission, it's hooked into the development challenges that uh, the countries that we work with are facing, and it allows us to really reflect on what is important and then start to invest in areas that will get the knowledge to the right people at the right time as kind of a... Um, yeah, the, the donors are not monoliths, and you have people in the donors who I think are way ahead of us on this. You know, they're, they're doing development differently phenomenon, the thinking and working politically, these coalitions of, uh, they emerge mainly out of governance where people realize that the old way hadn't achieved much in terms of institutional reform and they were looking at new and really interesting ways to bring about institutional reform. They're dominated by donors uh, and academics and the NGOs are rather far behind. But when we take money from donors, we don't talk to those guys. We talk to what you call the bean counters. And that's why it's interesting. In that conversation at USAID, um, you asked your contractors, so what do you need from us to enable this to happen? And the first thing that came back was, we need a hotline because you may say all this nice stuff about being adaptive, but when we talk to the junior sort of Dan Druffy official, um, they're just going to want an easy life and they're going to they're dig their heels in and say, no, you can't change your indicators or you can't change your plan. So there is that issue with of who you're talking to and what level the senior people always as far as my experience the senior people get this politicians the actual political leaders are interesting because in their private or in their life as politicians they totally understand you know events dear boy that's what messes up any politician's life um they become ministers and suddenly they want to ask for proof and evidence and business cases and i don't quite understand how they square those two completely contradictory approaches in their own lives but they seem to do that quite often All right. So again, three um, quite different uh, clips that, at least to me in reviewing these, uh, spoke to the question of impact. And so we have Duncan talking about really accountability and how you square that need for being able to talk about the funding and what it has done and the actual impact of work and how donors are recognizing that things need to be done differently to get to greater impact. We have um, Karen talking about not just getting the right knowledge to the right people at the right time so that 
um, our outcomes can be improved. But I would say making it available to the right people at the right time. Um, so it's not just a push model. And, um, you know, Karen talks very much about knowledge management, and knowledge management is a key, key component of learning, and, and, and we know that sometimes people use different terminology, but it is about knowledge and know-how, as Gwen was talking about, having the right guidance, having a right, the right expertise, and really getting to that bottom line, which is impact. And one of the things, one of the challenges I certainly can recall in the earlier days of knowledge management, and you and I have talked about this before, Stacy, is that there were times at which we would pull together working groups of knowledge managers, and it would feel like we were almost a support group, you know? Right. <laughs> Hi, I'm Piers, and I'm a knowledge manager. <laughs> Hi, Piers. <laughs> because we had to justify our existence. And there seems to be more and more of this, this tide shift towards recognizing that investing in intentional and systematic organizational learning and knowledge management efforts will improve impact. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that's right. Um, so now the conversations are not so much uh, should we be doing this, but how should we be doing this? How can we do it better? I think Gwen and Karen also um, really uh, got at the importance of doing that in order to be sure that our development work is relevant to, you know, as Karen said, the priorities of the organization, um, but also the priorities of the the country context in, in which we're operating. Those are really different, but it, it speaks to the importance of being able to push an organization to adapt its planning processes and its monitoring processes, its performance management processes to a more iterative modality so that you can take advantage of, of that learning. You know, if you get the right knowledge to the right people at the right time, but you have the wrong processes, you have the wrong incentives, right. um, you have the, the wrong uh, set of uh, efforts around how to how to make sense of the impact of what we're doing um, and the wrong accountability measures, as Duncan was getting at, then it's all for naught. So um, again, it, it's it's this this issue of how you help the people do the best that they can, but how you make sure that the context around them, supports that and then how you understand that on on the other end how do we define impact what does accountability mean does it does it mean that we are holding people accountable for knowing what the latest learning is for grappling with the implications for their programs for um, instituting institutional processes that are designed not to figure out did you spend the money on time? Did you spend the right amount of money? Did you stick to the plan? Um, what do your indicators at a very granular level say? But really, um, are we achieving development impact? Do we know? If we don't know, that's okay because it's a hard thing to do, but how can we get at that? Um, those kinds of higher order questions that can really support people in then taking that important knowledge and fitting their work to the context that addresses the priorities of the people we're trying to help and so on. 
Wow. There's a lot in there. Sorry. And you didn't know. You did a, a great job of trying to highlight everything that is worth considering. And uh, it reminds me, as, as Karen said, that this is not a hard science. Um, and it also gets me thinking, we we're talking about impact and um, trying to help those that we are serving, that even though we have these three buckets of answers, there's a fundamental piece to it, which is it's not just about impact from our perspective. Was the money spent well? Um, what kind of social change have we seen? But it is how does organizational learning contribute to the self-reliance of the people that we are serving? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you know, as you're talking about that, Piers, I'm thinking about a couple of examples that come out of the facilitative approaches that we most often see in market systems development, but we also see in other sectors sometimes. So, um, for instance, uh, I know I've talked with you about this before, um, a watershed management effort in Southern Africa that um, brings together all of the watershed users from the people who are using it to water their livestock and um, irrigate their kitchen gardens to the industries that are uh, drawing water from the source um, for manufacturing uh, and brings people together um, to try to define what is development with respect to protecting the watershed and also supporting the livelihoods and the economic activities of those who use it. And starting at that very basic level of even language, how, how do we talk about this resource and how do we talk about our use and how do we talk about governance and rights and all of that? And starting there as um, a very learning intensive effort at collaboration to begin to define an agenda that can then go on and help a donor figure out how do we support self-reliance among this very disparate group of people around this common resource, just as an example. And what I hear you saying is that the starting place is an acknowledgement of the complexity of the situation. Right, and how much we need to learn about it before we even know what we're doing to catalyze. Right, and I think that's been a fundamental principle in um, the work that uh, the CLA team has been doing, that, that USAID has been doing, and that we've seen a lot of our um, thought leaders in learning promoting, the, the place of seek first to understand. Right, and then seek again to re-understand because <laughs> things have changed. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think we could talk about this all day. I w <laughs> Probably, but our listeners wouldn't like that. <laughs> but we have uh, five more episodes after this one, so if you want to hear more of our voices, that's great. And some of these themes you will notice as you listen to this series will, will crop up again and again. But um, Stacy, I want to take this opportunity to thank you as always. This has been a really fun project to work on with you and it's fun to uh, record these episodes. And I want to thank um, Gwen Hines and Karen Mokate and Duncan Green for, for their interviews. And as always, our intrepid podcast producer, Amy Leo. Thank you, Amy. 
and to thank the Office of Learning, Evaluation, and Research in USAID's Bureau for Policy, Planning, and Learning. Stacy, any uh, parting words for this episode? Um, uh, well, thanks to you and, and to Amy, uh, definitely. Uh, but Pierce, what are we talking about next time? What's the next episode about? That is a wonderful question. Episode three will be, what is the role of evidence and data in organizational learning efforts? Okay, I'm really looking forward to that. Thank you both. Until next time, thank you. The USAID Learning Lab podcast is a production of USAID Learn, implemented by DEXIS Consulting Group and its partner, RTI International, on behalf of USAID's Office of Learning Evaluation and Research in the Bureau for Policy Planning and Learning. The opinions in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the United States government. Our music is by Poddington Bear.